So I think the most rewarding is definitely the variety and all the incredible people that I get to work with and learn from. Talking to all those different stakeholders in different countries around the world and really learning from them and hearing from them how they're approaching the ghost care problem and then sharing those learnings. I'm Lee Matthews and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. Everything is connected and every action we take impacts somebody, something or someplace. As I get older and learn more about the world, the connections become clearer. Things that seem straightforward on the surface are incredibly complex and intersect with things that seem completely unrelated. I love this about the world, how we can seem to be on opposing sides of an issue, yet have a shared goal that will benefit us all. Ghost gear is one of those things. A staggering 640,000 tonnes of abandoned, lost and discarded fishing nets, lines and traps are left in our oceans every year. Trapping, injuring, mutilating and killing hundreds of thousands of whales, seals, turtles and birds every year. But this doesn't only affect wildlife, it affects livelihoods, biodiversity, climate and human rights. To unpack this, I invited Ingrid Giskis onto the podcast. Ingrid is the director of the Global Ghost Gear Initiative at the Ocean Conservancy. The Ghost Gear Initiative brings together a multi-stakeholder approach to solving the problem of ghost gear, with over 100 partners involved, including governments around the world. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Ingrid. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It's wonderful to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's jump straight in and I want to ask you, what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? Uh, The idea of of doing good for me really means to live and work towards a higher purpose that benefits our global community beyond our lifetime. And in my case, that's our global ocean community. I've landed in this career with a background in diplomacy and conflict resolution. And so it's really important for me to reach that higher purpose through collaboration and partnership and bringing people together within that community. And so for me, working on ghost gear, um, it's a very much a cross-cutting issue that I'm incredibly passionate about on its own, but also because it's often a conversation starter to do good beyond tackling the ghost gear problem. And it's a conversation starter into topics uh, like marine pollution, food security, climate change, and even human rights. Absolutely. I want to wind it back a little bit and understand a bit more about why you've chosen a career in doing good. Yeah, so I've always been passionate in wanting to do something benefiting the world beyond my own lifetime, beyond my own immediate environment. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to study at university, I thought a career in diplomacy and conflict resolution would be a great way into that space of being able to bring people together, building consensus and achieving some great policy objectives. So I've really um, entered this space with a policy hat on. I don't have a background in fisheries, which is often surprising to many people, um, given I'm so ingrained on fishing gear right now. 
but I've really uh, come to the table more from a policy background. And so as I started studying diplomacy, I realized that maybe working for a government would limit me in my pursuit. And so a career working for an NGO or a philanthropic organization would allow me more flexibility to work with more different types of stakeholders from private sector to governments to academia and NGOs to really achieve some good in the world. What are your thoughts on how we express doing good? So some people choose to do good through their career and they live and breathe this idea of doing good. And some people kind of separate it off and go, well, I work in this space and I do my good by donating once a month or volunteering once a month. Do you think we can separate good in those spaces or do you think for you personally, it's about living it in every aspect of your life? Yeah, for me, it's really living and breeding it in every aspect of my life when I do my work when, you know, in my professional pursuits, but also making choices when, you know, when I buy a cup of coffee to go for that reusable cup, when I purchase other things, being a responsible consumer. It's about the way I communicate with people in my family, talking about issues that are important to us. It's when I think about, you know, potentially raising a family one day, what values I want to give to my children. It's really living and breathing it every day. And so for me, thinking about this podcast and talking to you today, I don't necessarily feel like I do good in the world. It's more being myself, I guess, and pursuing, you know, what I'm passionate about and how I want to be remembered and be in the world. I don't necessarily feel like you know, I'm actively trying to do good. I'm just trying to to be myself. I love that. I love that. So Ingrid, tell us a little bit more about what exactly the Ghost Gear Initiative does. Yeah, so the Global Ghost Gear Initiative is a platform that brings together more than 120 different organisations from governments to NGOs to academia, private sector partners to tackle the problem of ghost gear. And so ghost gear is really the name for lost, abandoned or otherwise discarded fishing gear. So it's basically any type of fishing equipment that's lost or abandoned in our ocean. And at the moment, estimates suggest that it's about 640,000 metric tons of fishing gear that's left in our ocean every year, which, you know, if you compare it, it's more than one ton of gear every minute entering our ocean, you know, and that figure is based on an old study. So it's likely to be even higher today. So I think the volume of gear entering our ocean is often underestimated, but it's quite, quite significant. And so we found that ghost gear is the single most deadly type of ocean plastic to marine life, marine animals, often due to entanglement. But it's not only affecting marine life, it's also really compromising the yield and income for fisheries. For example, it's estimated that 90% of species caught in lost and abandoned fishing gear is actually of commercial value. And so thinking about, you know, the cross-cutting nature of the issue, we really felt it was important to bring all of these different stakeholders together to tackle this enormous problem. It's incredible. That's a huge amount of plastics and rubbish going into our oceans. So where does the name ghost gear come from? Because I told my kids I was recording a podcast today and I said, I'm interviewing someone from the ghost gear initiative. And they were like, what is that? You know, I 
went to explain it to them and they were like, but I still don't understand why ghost. So can you break that down for us? Yeah, for sure. Even though it doesn't sound like a technical term, it is a term that is used by United Nations, for example, as well, to talk about a band that lost and discarded fishing gear. And I think the original name ghost gear really came from the vision that gear, when it's lost or abandoned, it floats underneath the ocean surface. It's not visible to the human eye, but it's really there. And it's acting like a ghost trapping and tangling marine animals, fish stock levels beneath the ocean surface. And so even though it's not a very visible problem, it is definitely there, almost like a ghost, you know, it's not visible, but it's always there. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So How does the majority of this gear end up discarded in the ocean? When we talk about fisheries, there's always a chance of losing or abandoning fishing gear. So where there's fishing, there's ghost gear. That's just kind of what's happening right now. But often the misconception is that the majority of gear ending up in our ocean is because of intentional discard. However, that's not the case. It's often due to bad weather conditions, snagging on rocky surfaces due to spatial pressures or the way fishing gear is just managed. And so with the Global Ghost Gear Initiative, we're really trying to educate, raise awareness to make sure that fishing gear is better managed so it doesn't end up being lost in our ocean. And so I think it's really important to know that, you know, no fisher really wants to lose their fishing gear. Fishing gear is incredibly expensive. Nets sometimes cost thousands and thousands of dollars. And so it really hurts their bottom line in the long run. And that's why they're also keen to collaborate with us on a solution to help avoid this loss. Are there any particular hotspots around the world where this is more prevalent? So wherever fishing activities take place, the loss or abandonment of fishing gear poses a risk, and that can apply to rivers, lakes, our ocean and other waterways. So it's very much a problem across the whole aquatic environment. One of the key challenges that we have faced in the area of ghost gear is the lack of data. And so it's a problem that we've been trying to overcome through the Global Ghost Gear Initiative data portal, through doing surveys with fishers and also doing a lot of hotspot mapping. But at the moment, it's really hard to say this country, this region is where the problem is most pervasive. We have some information, but evidence gathering is definitely still on top of mind of our mission to get a better picture of this. I was reading an article that was talking about some work that you guys and I think some of your partners had done in Myanmar. They were talking about training local fishermen to dive down and retrieve gear that had been abandoned or discarded. And I was thinking while I was reading that, that's really great. And it was linked into the emerging tourism economy and snorkeling and scuba diving activities and things like that. But I wonder also, is there an imperative to make sure that those people are trained to safely dive and that they're not risking their lives while trying to retrieve gear as well. Yeah, so the retrieval of fishing gear is definitely a specialty and it requires a lot of training to be able to do it safely. So we only really encourage the retrieval of fishing gear where it can be done safely and where um, it's not open water or a deep water. So in Myanmar, we're working together there with a specialized dive master operation to really train local divers to do it safely. But we would never encourage any, you know, recreational scuba diver to go and retrieve fishing gear. It needs to be done by a specialized agency or by people that are properly trained for sure. And 
who are these organisations or agencies that do do this? Within the Global Ghost Initiative, we're very lucky to have a couple of specialised organisations that are part of the initiative. So, for example, Ghost Fishing, that's the organisation's name, they do this. But there's also a couple of others called, for example, Fathoms Free, uh, Neptune uh, Rubbish Collectors. There's a lot of different organisations around the world. And often what they'll do before fishing gear is retrieved is they'll do a scoping analysis. They'll go down and take some videos of the net of the fishing gear that they want to retrieve. Then they'll formulate a proper removal plan, taking into account all the different conditions under which they need to dive. And also making sure that, you know, the retrieval of the gear is actually doing good for the marine habitat. So we need to take into account if there's already coral growth happening around the net, for example, so that we don't, don't do more damage than good by retrieving the net. And so after a retrieval plan put in place, then they'll go down and retrieve the net and then hopefully dispose of it responsibly. Yeah. And how are they identifying places? Are people reporting where they spot the nets or the rubbish or is it more are they going around and mapping where this stuff is? So one of the mission areas of the Global Ghost Gear Initiative is really understanding the picture of ghost gear better. And that means, you know, where fishing gear is being lost, but also where it might be accumulating in hotspot areas. And so this information, we collect it through surveys with fishers. So really understanding, you know, where they might be losing their gear or where they might have seen accumulations of gear. For example, last year, we retrieved this 20,000 pound gear ball from the Gulf of Maine, which was a huge kind of monster of ropes, nets, pots, all entangled up in one huge ball, um, really obstructing some crucial fishing grounds there. And so that information we got through conversations with fishers who were aware of this fishing gear being there. And then on top of surveys, we used, you know, scientific information like ocean currents, bathymetry, ocean depth to really understand, you know, what the fishery effort might look like and where gear might be moving towards. And there's other technologies like sonar scanning technology. There's some, you know, pilot projects done with drone surveys. I'm trying to find where gear might be accumulating. So different methods to really understand, you know, where the gear is in our ocean and where it might be most crucial to remove it. And I imagine that data is really crucial for you guys in crafting your approach from a policy perspective and an advocacy perspective, right? Definitely. Yeah. So, you know, the Global Ghost Gear Initiative really takes a holistic approach when it comes to ghost gear. And at the moment, we're the only global alliance dedicated solely to tackling this problem at global scale. And so while we work on removing gear from the water, we also really focus on reducing the amount of gear entering the ocean because prevention is always better than cure. And that's really where all our policy work comes in. So understanding where gear might be can also really highlight and inform policy solutions and solution projects going forward and really trying to put ghost gear on the global agenda as a crucial issue for our ocean's health. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, which was the cross-cutting impacts of ghost gear. Could you walk us through how this issue affects other sectors and other development issues? Yes, ghost gear is definitely a cross-cutting issue. When I first started working on the topic, the key data that I was given were really around the impact on marine life from a marine pollution perspective. 
But then if you dig deeper and thinking about, you know, what marine life is really impacted, it's not only the dolphins, the whales, the turtles, but it's also really the fish. And 90% of species caught in ghost gear are of commercial value. And if we know that, you know, 3 billion people are relying on fish for about 20% of their protein, with this number rising to 50% in some developing countries, you know, we can definitely say that ghost gear is a real threat to food security. So that's one of the topics. But obviously, when we're talking about food security, income from fisheries and yield, it's also really a livelihood problem, really impacting coastal communities, people that depend on fishing for their livelihood. And one of the most compelling stats I've read in this space was that, you know, if we would remove 10% of the ghost pots and traps in our oceans from the world's crustacean fisheries, landings would increase by 300,000 metric tons, saving about $800,000 annually. So that only shows that, you know, it's a problem for food security for our fish stock levels, but also really for the income of our fishing communities. And obviously in the world right now where fisheries have been hit so heavily by the COVID pandemic, the issue has only become more and more relevant. I found that with Ghost Gear, we think about it as a pollution problem, but it is so much more than that. And it's often been a conversation starter for me into other sustainable development goals or sustainable development topics like food security, livelihoods, but also climate change and human rights. So as you're talking and it, it's making me think about David Attenborough's most recent documentary, A Life on Our Planet, and him talking about overfishing and the depletion of fish stocks. How does this issue around livelihoods and ghost gear and the, the need to increase yield for fisheries interact with overfishing? Yeah, it's a very good question. I've very much enjoyed watching that documentary as well. And one of the key quotes from that documentary that really stood out for me was, if we care for our ocean, our ocean will care for us. And that's been very much the motto by which the Global Ghost Gear Initiative has been founded and by which we operate. And so when we talk about wicked problems, when we tackle ghost gear, it's really an issue where solving it only creates winners. So stopping ghost gear, you know, helps our planet, helps marine life, but also helps fishers who depend on our ocean and the bottom line of seafood sellers who rely on healthy fish stock levels. So, you know, we've always worked really in the spirit of collaboration, bringing together organizations where, you know, from the outside, there might be an expected tension, like, for example, the NGOs that clean up the gear and the private sector. But we haven't experienced that tension because everyone realizes that by working together and solving this problem, everyone will come out on top. Yeah, I know from my experience with setting up Rethink Orphanages, which was a, an advocacy network as well, working on an issue that does have so many cross-cutting issues and has stakeholders who from the outside look like they're on very opposing sides of the coin it can actually be tough to find a middle ground and communicate about an issue that does, I guess, bring up so much emotion and depth of action and feeling for a lot of people and organisations. And NGOs, like any other organisation, exist on a spectrum of, you know, some are very radical, some are conservative and, and some are somewhere in the middle. 
How have you addressed this within the Go Skier initiative? So when we started thinking about the Go Skier problem and how best to address it, we didn't create a separate NGO working purely on Go Skier on our own, but we created an alliance. And that was really with the intent of bringing all these different groups and stakeholders around the table to really have multiple voices rather than just being on our own in our own little ghost gear echo chamber, so to speak. And so the Global Ghost Gear Initiative brings together, you know, industry, some of those more radical NGOs, some more middle ground NGOs to talk to each other. We all realize like we need each other. We need some of those louder voices to highlight the issue. We need the conservation groups to provide the research. We need the fishing companies to provide us with the data and also implement some of our policy changes. We need the governments to create this enabled policy environment to fund some of our work as well, very important. So, you know, everyone has space around that table. And it's been surprisingly easy to find middle ground and create consensus from disparate groups. We often get the comments within the Global Ghost Gear Initiative that everyone is so nice to each other. And I think that's really because everyone's just really passionate about finding a solution and finding that middle ground within the safe space that we provide. It's so refreshing to hear because it's certainly not the case across all sectors. And, you know, it makes me wonder, is it because there is an acceptance that you you can't do this alone and one angle of approaching this is not going to work on its own and we have to actually work together with those who might seem to have opposing ethics and objectives to achieve the goal that is beneficial for everybody. We really have seen within the Global Ghost Gear Initiative that by bringing people around the table, everyone just wants to see the best conservation outcome. And I think everyone, you know, has accepted and realizes that everyone has a role to play because unfortunately there's no silver bullet approach to solve the ghost gear problem. So we really need a suite of solutions, including equipping fishers with best practices, creating more circularity for end-of-life fishing gear, focusing on innovative materials, the marking of fishing gear, policy reform, etc. I think when you come to the table from that perspective, there's no finger pointing, no vilifying. There's only a solution there that we need to all contribute to. I think that creates, you know, just a positive and collaborative spirit in which we can see uh, amazing things happen for our ocean. How do you think your background in diplomacy has impacted your approach to this? I think a lot. (laughs) I think um, I've always been really passionate in creating cross-sectoral collaboration, bringing people around the table. I think for me, conversation is always the most powerful tool to achieve great outcomes. And I feel especially right now in this pandemic area where, you know, we can't travel, we can't do a lot of on-the-ground work. So talking and conversation is really all we have right now as a tool to achieve great outcomes. And so I think coming to it, maybe not from a fisheries background, but really from a policy background, wanting to create consensus and avoid conflict has hopefully helped the initiative on its way. Yeah. And sometimes an external perspective gives you a greater advantage in seeing all the different angles that this can be approached by. 
Ingrid, you were in Nairobi in 2019 for the UN Environment Assembly, which is one of the world's biggest global environmental conferences. At this time, an Ethiopian Airlines plane flying to Nairobi tragically crashed, killing all 157 people on board, many of whom were travelling to attend the Environment Assembly. How has this impacted both you and the environmental sector as well? The events in Nairobi were definitely a big wake-up call for me, not only, you know, causing immense pain within the development community, seeing all those wonderful people pass away in their mission of wanting to do good for the world, but also really has strengthened my belief that my path is really trying to do good and trying to help solve this ghost-gear problem. And so um, I was waiting in Nairobi for my friend and colleague, Joanna Tool, who was unfortunately on the Ethiopian Airlines flight. And so she unfortunately passed away on her way to me as we were trying to host a side event on lost and abandoned fishing gear on ghost gear. And so Joanna was one of the founders of the Global Ghost Gear Initiative. She was one of the key people that put ghost gear on the global agenda And so her passing has only really strengthened me in my mission of wanting to do her work justice and continue what she started. And she started working for an NGO and, you know, raising awareness on Ghost Gear that way, and then transitioned into a role for the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. And so she really was that embodiment of trying to find common ground, bringing stakeholders together. And she really did that within her lifetime. And seeing the outpour of support and messages after her passing, you know, has really made me realize what a tight-knit community we are. You know, we always say the Global Ghost Gear Initiative is more than an initiative. It's really a family. And that event in Nairobi really strengthened that, yeah, for me. I'm so sorry for your loss. It's an incredible loss personally, but also to the development sector as a whole. It's tragic. What do you find most rewarding about your work? And conversely, what is the most challenging thing about your work? What I find most rewarding about my work is that the Global Ghost Gear Initiative really is a global initiative. So really seeing how different communities and different stakeholders all around the world address this problem in their own unique way, but, you know, doing justice to the mission um, areas of the Global Ghost Gear Initiative And so my work is always very diverse. No day is the same. So I can get up in the morning and be preparing a policy brief for a government. And then a couple of hours later, be talking to our partners in Nigeria of how they are going to organize a craft workshop with a women's group to make arts and crafts out of ghost gear. To then, you know, talk to a seafood company around hosting a workshop for their supply chain. So it's talking to all those different stakeholders in different countries around the world and really learning from them and hearing from them how they're approaching the ghost gear problem and then sharing those learnings. So I think the most rewarding is definitely the variety and all the incredible people that I get to work with and learn from. The most challenging aspect about my work In the beginning, it was definitely that ghost gear was seen as a niche issue. I wasn't getting a lot of attention. Convincing people why this was important, that was a challenge. 
And then I think also, you know, that there isn't a single silver bullet approach. There's a suite of solutions there, but there's not just one thing that people can do to solve the problem. There's a suite of solutions that we'll have to implement um, and continue to implement over the coming years to, to see a real impact for our waterways and our ocean. Yeah, it is challenging because I think, you know, as humans, we do try to look for that silver bullet. We want there to be a simple answer to stop this. And And, you know, on the surface, I think it does seem quite simplistic. Stop losing fishing gear and clean it up. That can be very simplistic, but as you've explained, it's not at all. It's full of so many interacting objectives and stakeholders that absolutely need to work together. Who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good? I don't think I have like one single person that has been like my key inspiration or the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's more continuously meeting amazing people and learning from them about what doing good means to them and how I can incorporate some of the things that they're doing into my own life. And that can be, you know, from like, a very progressive government driving policy change. Like, for example, the Canadian government passing this amazing ghost gear fund last year and showing what is possible if really, you know, political power puts their heads together to, you know, talking to a fisherman in Indonesia around marking their fishing net and what it means for them in being able to provide a livelihood and putting their kids to school. So it's really that variety of conversations that I'm having and that I have the privilege to have each day and learning from them that has inspired me and continues to inspire me. So it's not just one celebrity. I think it's more people on the ground doing their day-to-day jobs and sharing their experiences with me. I love that. I absolutely love that. A bit of a philosophical question now. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? And this is something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking. I think the biggest realizations that I've come through over the last nine months as the COVID pandemic has hit is that it doesn't necessarily hurt to press pause. I think we've just kind of gotten into the habit of always looking for the next thing, the next achievement. What do we do next? Not just pressing pause for a minute, take stock and see what is right in front of us. And so I think with the COVID pandemic and everyone adopting a different pace of life and facing a lot of challenges because of it, I think we've come to realize more what there is in front of us in the present moment rather than trying to chase the new next shiny thing all the time. And so for me, um, having this time and not being on an airplane or in a conference or in a meeting all the time um, has allowed me to have a lot more deeper conversations with partners uh, around the world, often over Zoom, which is not ideal. There's definitely some Zoom fatigue, but having that space to just have a think, take a breath and think through some of these global problems we're facing and take time to listen to each other. I think that's been one of the most refreshing things. And so I think one of the most social challenges that we faced is really, yeah, just the pace at which we're living. I think that the speed which we're living and trying to achieve things. Yeah, yeah, I can relate. And this subconscious or unconscious effect that it has on your life and your body. And like you said, being in planes all the time, going places all the time, not really ever having time to sit 
and stop and really deeply listen to other people as well. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? If I could tell the world one thing and have everyone listen, I think it's for people to realize that your own reality is not necessarily everyone else's reality. To think that, you know, the pressures that you face every day or the challenges or the privileges that you have might not be everyone else's. And I think, you know, realizing that everyone has a different reality to yours is important to really also, you know, within work, reach consensus, but also to be more patient, to be more understanding and to come to the best solutions, you know, to be a more kind human, but also do more good in the world in a very inclusive way. Yeah, perfect. Ingrid, where is your favorite place on earth? My very favorite place on earth, two places, <laughs> because I can't choose. Um, if I have to choose an ocean place, um, it would be the northern beaches of Sydney and Avalon. It's a beautiful ocean community, very tight knit. There's a rock pool there that I go swimming in often. There's a couple of beautiful surf breaks. And yeah, it's, it's just a place that continues to inspire me. My favorite terrestrial place is Belgium, where I grew up, my hometown of Linden. There's some beautiful fields behind my house. And my favorite thing to do is watch the sunrise and watch all the birds fly through the fields. Yeah, it's, it's a whole special place in my heart. Wonderful. They both sound very beautiful. What book are you reading right now? I am currently reading Barack Obama's first part of his um, biography. I felt that it's important for me to understand what's going on in the US, but it's also really interesting to read how he predicted a lot of the things that are going on in the world right now, but also kind of from a philosophical perspective, how he came to be president and some of the values that he grew up with that he tried to uh, weave into his presidency and now in some of the engagements and the philanthropic work that he's doing today. So I'm only uh, 200 pages into it and I know it's only part one, but it's been a very inspiring read for me to, to better understand the world, but also how someone like Obama, who does a lot of good in the world, has come to fulfill his life's mission. You know what's interesting? I'm actually reading that at the moment as well for similar reasons to understand what has happened in America and, and how have we come to be in this place in the world. And what about podcasts? Do you listen to podcasts? I do listen to podcasts. It's one of my favorite ways to start the day, but also sometimes to fill moments of contemplation or meditation or um, have them on while I'm doing other things. And so one of the podcasts that I listen to every day is called Yoga Girl Daily. And she always has a message or a meditation or something to think about throughout your day. And so I often start my day when I'm in the shower, uh, listening to like a 10 minute podcast to set me up for the day ahead. Yeah, that's been great. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Ingrid, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. And I've actually learned so much about an issue that I, I knew very little about. So thank you for enlightening me and sharing your wisdom and experience with our audience. It's been really wonderful wonderful to have you here. My pleasure. It was so lovely to be on and uh, ponder some of those more philosophical questions as well. I told you Gursky was a cross-cutting issue, so I think we've definitely proven that in the podcast. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jaja Wurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. 
we acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of the Good Academy, an online learning platform designed to help you do better at doing good, whoever you are. Find out more at www.thegoodacademy.net. You can also find us on Facebook or Instagram by searching for The Good Academy. Don't forget to subscribe and share.